When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. You're listening to episode 237 of TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. I'm Leslie Goldberg, the West Coast TV editor, and I'm joined as always by the great Dan Feinberg, the Hollywood Reporter's chief TV critic. Dan, how are you? It's the end of an era. I'm very excited about this end of this era. (laughs) It makes me feel sad that apparently strike was an era, but mostly it makes me happy that, as you say, after six months, after 118 days in the SAG after a part of the strike. And 148 from the Writers Guild. Hollywood is on the brink of back to business. I I don't know if we are fully back to business, but thankfully the strikes are over and we can see to the other side. And that is a great thing indeed. Absolutely. So obviously lots to get to this week. So we're going to save our strike talk for, well, you guessed it, an upcoming segment, actually two upcoming segments. Before we get into all that, we're going to start where we usually do with headlines. Number one. Leading off. Yes, Chef. FX's The Bear has officially been renewed for a third season on Hulu. The Emmy-nominated series will return in 2024. I would say about 98% of the reactions I saw to that renewal were, wait, it hadn't been renewed already? This was not a particularly surprising renewal, but sure, yay, excellent. People love The Bear. It's a great show. Of course it's going to be back. What are we What are we even talking? What are we doing here, darn it? It's a good headline, Dan. It and is. Of course it's it allows a, me to say, yes, chef. I am all there for it, and and we're all happy it's renewed, but the industry has changed, but the industry has not changed so much that shows like The Bear aren't going to be back, but good on it. Uh, speaking of changes, Paramount's Chris McCarthy continues to make changes at Showtime. This time he has opted to cancel the political docuseries The Circus after eight seasons, though it seems to me like there's an election coming up next year that having something like The Circus would be potentially really useful for, so... We'll see how that lasts or if there's a replacement for it, because I know a lot of political junkies loved that show, even if a lot of general junkies didn't necessarily. Yeah. And in news that broke shortly after we wrapped recording last week, the CW's days of being in the DC universe are officially coming to an end as Superman and Lois will conclude with its upcoming fourth and final season. Dan, this is the last DC Comics show on the CW, and it really does, well, mark the end of an era. (laughs) They can't all be eras. This one, however, absolutely is definitely a point of clear transition, but also a point of clear transition that 
everyone knew was well and truly <laughs> in the process. Leslie, go to your master uh, Google Doc and tell the kids when they could listen to our great interview with Brad Schwartz talking about the transition that the CW has been in and the role that some of the things we previously thought about as CWE played in that transition. Brad Schwartz joined us most recently in episode 225. That's from August 4th of this year. And he was a two-time guest, actually. He was one of our first executive guests. That was, let's see, uh, back in episode 34, August 16th, 2019, when he joined us to talk about the growth of Pop TV, which no longer exists as we do it. Yes, I was I was definitely talking about the time he came and talked to us about the CW rather than the time he came and talked to us about Shit's Creek, which was a great conversation as well, just different yeah. thing. Farewell Superman, <laughs> hello Jesus. As we always like to say to start the day. Um <laughs> It's just how I wake up in the morning. Anyway, continuing with a little casting news and Good God, there's going to be a lot of casting news in the next couple weeks slash months. I mean, it's going to become an avalanche. This is not an avalanche piece of news. This is just a reminder of a thing that you might have forgotten was actually coming. And guess what it is? Ryan Murphy's upcoming FX anthology American Sports Story has cast Josh Andres Rivera as Aaron Hernandez in a show that will cover the University of Florida and Patriots tight ends rather tragic and awful life journey. We'll see yeah. how that goes. Let's also start the timer. How soon until Ryan Murphy's Disney overall deal is formally announced? As we always like to tell people, we are recording this on Thursday afternoon. So if something happens on Thursday night, oh well, we'll get to it next week. Up next, SWAT will air on cable for the first time via a deal with producers Sony and the AMC-owned WeTV, where the CBS procedural will join such other syndicated repeats as Bones and 911, among others. I guess syndicated repeats of a CBS procedural will probably do better than some of the expensive unscripted stuff that WeTV does. I don't know. And in news that I would say is really for Friend of the Five, Chris Hainer, but Chris Hainer already knew about this and could have given us much more analysis than we're actually going to give. WWE NXT is moving from USA Network to the CW starting in 2024. USA Network recently landed WWE SmackDown from Fox. And you can go back to our conversation with Brad Schwartz of the CW. When was that, Leslie? I just said that. Do I need to look this up again? <laughs> no, you don't. Go back two seconds if you don't remember. Episode anyway. 225, August 4th, 2023. Exactly. He talked to us about the role that sports was going to play. And at the time, we were talking largely about the random secondary NASCAR series that they acquired and stuff. So this is another piece of that particular puzzle as the CW goes from being the network that people knew and love from various DC shows and various shows that felt like they should have aired on the WB 20 years ago to being, well, We'll see what it ends up being. Yeah, but the CW continues to basically pick up a lot of the bargain basement stuff. What's the golf thing? It's not the PGA, but it's... it's yes, it is live the Live Golf, go live, right? live like golf Tour, the Saudi Tour, yeah, as some people call it. If it's kind of the redheaded stepchild of sports, it's going to air on the CW. Nobody else wanted it, and it's cheap. CW. Next star. Exactly. They do not have infinite money, but there is a lot of sports out there. And so if they can find people who are interested in sort of the minor leagues of NASCAR and the expensive redheaded stepchild, as you say, no offense to either stepchildren or gingers, uh, we're perfectly fine with both, of the golf world or etc. Yeah, definitely. And they just There's secured a... the, the next Republican presidential debate, right? Sigh. <laughs> well, yeah, anyway. Good, goodbye, Superman. Goodbye, Jesus. Hello, Chris Christie. Anyway. Blech. <laughs> <laughs> On that note. Number two. 
Up next, huzzah! Hollywood's hot labor summer that turned into a fall frustration has finally... Let that sink in one more time. Finally come to an end as the Screen Actors Guild has reached a new tentative three-year deal with the Alliance of Motion Pictures and Television Producers. Dan, this segment can really just be about us saying huzzah a hundred times and, and how excited we are to start seeing things that we missed. Interviews with actors about episodes of television in which they're great, right? Like how happy were we last week when we got showrunners back on the podcast for the first time in six months? Like this is a collective sigh of relief across town. And across the whole industry. Yeah, exactly. It's good for everybody. And while we, of course, want to say it's good for us because we like having showrunners on the podcast. And of course, we want to say it's good for the showrunners because the showrunners like to promote their shows in places. And it's good for the actors because we're approaching award season. And so everybody is already excited that, yay, Bradley Cooper can talk about his new Netflix movie. But I think the last thing is the thing that is really and truly most important is that the industry, which has been frozen in time for six months, either frozen in time or kicked in the nads, whatever your preferred analogy or metaphor happens to be. I mean, being frozen in time implies that people haven't been actively hurting. It implies a certain level of status. And this has been a thing that has been hugely hurtful and damaging to countless people. And we've said this before many times, but we are happy for the gaffers. We are happy for the costumers. We are happy for the makeup artists. We are happy for the production assistants. We are happy for the caterers. We are happy for all of the people. Area businesses, everyone. Exactly. The area businesses and all of the places that rely on events, that rely, rely on catering, that rely on, good God, absolutely everything. This is, as we say, a company town, and it's a company town in which the company hasn't been active for six months. And so- Uh, You know, just God bless for everyone who gets to go back to work. And here's hoping that the people who have been most actively suffering are being given the help that they need so that they can get back to their lives. Because that is what this is all about, is taking the step away from what has been a very important thing for these labor unions, but also now into the important thing that has to be done to get the industry running again. Yeah. And a reminder, you can go back and listen to our interview with the chief operating officer of the Entertainment Community Fund. That was in episode 231 from late September to hear more about the impact of the strikes on the industry and those in it. But in terms of the actor strike, it is officially over at 12.01 a.m. on November 9th after 118 days. That, of course, follows the WGA, which reached its own deal with Hollywood studios and streamers after being on strike for 148 days. The performers union told members this week that the deal was worth more than $1 billion and includes pay increases that are higher than what others got this year. Maybe that's a dig at the Directors Guild, who of course reached a deal uh, with the AMPTP mere days before SAG members overwhelmingly voted to authorize a strike. Who knows, but we're still waiting to see the official details of what is in the new three-year MBA. The AMPTP says the SAG deal is the biggest contract on contract gains in the union's history, and it includes the largest increase in minimum wages in the past 40 years, as well as a new residual for streaming and extensive consent and compensation protections for the use of AI. Dan, really, it's the AI stuff that was the holdup here. We reported a very interesting story earlier this week about one of the, the last roadblocks to the deal, and it was compensation and consent for AI body scans for Schedule F performers. And Schedule F members and performers are basically the A-listers, feature film actors who make above this, a certain threshold. So basically, 
basically what the AMPTP previously wanted was the right to scan you. They would pay you to scan. Let's use George Clooney as an example, because why not? They would pay Clooney to, to scan him, but then they did not want to pay him for the use of his scan. But they would say, okay, we'll, we'll get your consent. But then it was like, but after you die, we don't need the consent from you or your estate and we wouldn't have to pay you. So you know, as one source said, it was in a dystopian future that AMPTP could actually go out and kill actors because they would have more rights to, to use their likenesses after their death than when they were alive. So obviously that's something that was addressed in the New Deal. So we'll see when those official points come out. That's probably Friday when it goes to the National Board for approval. Yeah, we had our fantastic colleague, Katie Kilkenny. Congratulations on surviving the strike, Katie, but also all of the THR. Wonderful. Rock star Katie Kilkenny. Absolutely. But when she was on, you know, it's- And by the way, before we even get to her, I just want, before we get to her comments, I just wanted to to take the second and huge shout out to Katie Kilkenny. Not only was she on top of all of this stuff, she actually broke the story that SAG had reached a tentative deal. She was first with that. THR was first. Katie and I were both first with news that the WGA had reached a tentative deal. Katie and I were also first with THR that the DGA had reached a tentative deal. Katie is a rock star. And if you don't follow her on social, what's wrong with you? She, to me, she is the best labor reporter on the planet. She is fair. She is balanced. And she got us well before the strike started. We had a long talk and said, okay, we have to use blind quotes, but we can at least attribute if they are from the studio side or a union side. That was her. Katie is an MVP. She's nominated for an LA Press Club award for online journalist of the year. And if she doesn't win, fuck you, LA Press Club. <laughs> That's all I'm going to say. But now you can go on to more of the details. But Team Katie all the way. MVP. Completely and totally Team Katie. Uh, don't necessarily know that we want to uh, be antagonizing the great people of the LA Press Club who are also You get great. what I'm saying. I don't mean I have... any offense if you're a member of the LA Press Club listening to this podcast, which is also nominated. Thank you, LA Press Club. But come on. It's Katie. No, no. Katie has been fantastic, and we have been very, very lucky to be the the beneficiary of her insight multiple times over the last six weeks because she's had the answers to our questions. And she's also been able to update us very informedly and without groundless speculation on a lot of things where it has been a shifting playing field, a movable feast. Once again, choose your favorite analogy of whatever. You know, she was on with us two weeks ago, three weeks ago. And and at that moment, it was the profit participation and residual sticking point that seemed like it was the primary sticking point. Then, as you say, it transitioned back to AI, which of course had been the sticking point previously. You can go back to our interview with Justine Bateman, where she talked about all of the concerns and fears she had about AI. It's the nature of negotiations that are as wide ranging as this. Similarly, the writer's went through various different periods where the sticking points were dot, 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 and then it became something completely different by the following week. But I think it is going to be very interesting when we actually get the granular details, preferably in uh, easy-to-read outline form, because ain't nobody got the time to read a huge, huge document on this. But just to see what the actual phrasing was on where things ended up on the AI scans issue, you definitely presented an interesting dystopic scenario in which 
the studios would be killing off movie stars so that they could make sequels to One Fine Day starring a, a scan of George Clooney. That was a dark turn, a little bit like the podcast interview we did with Simon Rich, where he basically said that AI was going to come and kill us off. So I'm just referencing all of our great podcast interviews during the <laughs> during the strike, because I feel like we did a lot of those. You, Leslie's got a full list. She's about to run through everything now. Every single one, Leslie, or not. No, I wasn't. I was just going to say Simon <laughs> Rich joined us. It was a fascinating conversation about AI and room size. That was episode 227, August 18th, 2023. Indeed. So everyone's been doing the best they can, and we've been doing the best we can to try to give you our best version of perspective on all of the shifting standards and objects and obstacles and et cetera of the strike situation. But yeah, maybe next week we'll have a good enough sense so that we can actually get granular on some of the things. To their credit, when the Writers Guild reached their settlement, they had that very, very good, very readable outline document and they had it by like the next day. I really, really hope that when SAG gets around to finally announcing the terms of this deal, that they have an equally easily readable, say five to seven page document telling me what was gained. Because because seriously, I, I need bullet points. Number three. Up third this week, SAG has a deal. What's next? This has been a conversation that Leslie has been engaged in, well, for six months, but also particularly when the writer's strike ended and into now. Basically, there's been a lot of conversation about what <laughs> what it's actually going to take to get things back into production and when people are going to see the shows they love. But even that seems a little bit unreasonable, given that, frankly, there's been a lot of TV that's still been airing. But okay, so let's go into the conversation. We've had this before. Let's start with the broadcast season. Where does the broadcast season stand when do people anticipate things going again? And what are we looking at in terms of episode counts and how that will look for this season? Well, this is, again, a story that I did early October, and you can basically forward that timeline. So at this point, if you're lucky, you'll start to see episodes maybe the end of January. For, um, at least on on broadcast, the stuff that's going to be back first is probably the things that is the fastest to shoot. Multi camera comedies, you can you know obviously those those tape live in front of a studio audience. Writers have been back now for about a month or so, give or take, but expect the, some of the broadcast stuff to start coming out either mid or end of January. At this point, you're going to be lucky if you can get anywhere around ten to thirteen episodes. Some of the dramas may take longer, especially if there's CGI. I'm sure all the Dick Wolf stuff will be among the first to come back too, because he's, he knows exactly how to make those shows, etc. But you know, the, the bigger things that, that I'm interested in talking about here is there's going to be a mad scramble. And we've talked about this after COVID and when productions went started going back all at the same time. What happens is there's the, the mad scramble for sound stages. There's going to be content, whether that's TV or films, that are completely dropped because of scheduling conflicts. So think of it this way. During the pandemic, Milo Ventimiglia was supposed to do a show about Evil Knievel, which is a subject that's near and dear to him. He was going to star in it, and he executive produced it via his production company. He was supposed to shoot that during the hiatus on This Is Us. Well, the pandemic and quarantine part of it wiped out the hiatus. And when he went back, obviously, This Is Us is in was at the time in first position. So what happened was the Evil Knievel show went goodbye. So never to be seen from again, at least right now. Who knows if he'll try it again to shop that again in, in a couple of years. But anyway, that's going to continue to happen. So stuff that's in first position, 
obviously takes precedence. So if there's something that people were going to do during a hiatus, I don't know. One of the things that I'm curious about is is uh, Ellen Pompeo's role on Grey's Anatomy, for example. She was only supposed to do a few episodes of this upcoming season because she's doing a, a Hulu limited series that she's also executive producing. Well, the hiatus period is long gone. And, yet, and this is normally when she would be filming Grey's Anatomy or at least a couple episodes of it, right? Like, is that show still going to happen? I would presume it is because she doesn't just leave Grey's Anatomy, you know, and make a big deal of it and then see this limited series not happen. So anyway, that that's just an example. So obviously broadcast shows, we've talked about how that's going to impact. But the other thing is, is that if you're a new broadcast show, right? Think, you know, God, I can't even remember the name of the broadcast shows that were picked up, right? There's <laughs> another one from the Good Wife creators that that stars Carrie Preston, for example, right? Yes, There's, that was the uh, that was an, the Elsbeth show. Right. There's a new Matlock with Kathy Bates. There's a lot of different stuff that that was picked up. And ABC got a jump on this and bumped one of its new shows to next season, the 24-25 broadcast season. Now, what and I've said this before on this podcast. That's probably going to happen with all of the new shows. So we saw that happen with Night Court last year because that was developed out of the pandemic and they took their time. They did a little recasting and they found the show. The show worked, became this huge hit, right? That's a, a great example and a great lesson for the broadcast networks that you don't need to rush new shows, right? These new shows take longer to find their own creative footing. So why rush that? So instead, they're in, they're going to push those to next season, which is going to have a trickle down effect. And broadcast networks may not need to develop as mu- nearly as much if they've already got five, six shows already in production on the schedule for 24-25. So that means fewer development, fewer pilots, et cetera. So think of it that way about what's going to happen in terms of the content contraction. So some stuff has already been unrenewed or pulled from streaming platforms. That's going to continue. Peak TV, the bubble is burst. The arms race for talent with the you know these the massive nine figure overall deals that we reported on those days are likely over except for whenever Ryan Murphy decides to make his return home to Disney official but look for the price tag on those deals to come down same thing with talent deals you know the programming in terms of what you see on screen that is going to get broader because it has to appeal both to audiences domestically as well as international because these companies all need that content for their streaming platforms. And what you're also seeing is the walled gardens that we've talked about from vertical integration, right? Like, you know, I, I like to use the CW as a great example because they needed the the content. Their original shows were, were supposed to go from CBS shows, go to Paramount Plus. The Warner Brothers shows went to Max. Well, now you're starting to see the wall, these walled gardens. These walls are, are coming down. You know, Disney said in its earnings report this week that it will license non-core programming. So think things that are not Star Wars, Pixar, Marvel, those those major buckets for them. They're going to start licensing more of that non-core stuff to Netflix. That follows Warner Brothers Discovery licensing the DC movies and HBO Max selling shows like um, Insecure. I think it's Insecure, right? Six Feet Under and a couple others to Netflix, right? This is revenue. This is what these companies need after the strikes. So vertical integration, it ebbs and flows over this industry. I've been doing this 20 years now at THR and you've seen... the time more vertical integration. Everyone needs content for their own, but now they're recognizing that keeping it doesn't necessarily always suit them because if they can monetize it and it helps offset some of the losses created by the the, the work stoppage, well, you got to appease Wall Street. So this is all all just saying that the industry that 
existed before the writer strike and the actor strike and the industry that everyone is coming back to is now radically different. And this was not because of the strike, but it was accelerated by the strikes. Oh, this was definitely not this was definitely not exclusively because of the strikes, because what you just said about everyone selling their material to get uh, to get more money out of it. If you go back to podcasts from, say, three years ago or four years ago, we talked about how what everyone was doing was trying to bring their chickens home to roost, that everyone was trying to bring everything back in house, that all of the things that people had licensed out to other streamers and other companies that they wanted to have it exclusive to their own platforms. And yeah, everyone decided that didn't work. Um, I'm also extremely happy that in a dystopic future in which everyone Fahrenheit 451 style is sitting around fireplaces and people are representing different television shows and people have become the bards telling stories. Allow me to tell you the story of Friends season nine or something, which you also will be able to do. I like the idea that you're going to sit around that fireplace and you're going to be like, I remember back when Milo Ventimiglia was going to do a six episode miniseries about Evil Knievel. I feel like you are keeping that dream alive for the entire world. And Milo Ventimiglia is out there somewhere and he appreciates it, Leslie. That is <laughs> that is all I am saying. <laughs> yeah. The other thing that I'm going to be really curious to see is what great art comes out of this because, you know, so many people did continue to write for themselves during the strikes. And I always am of the mindset that something good always comes from something bad, whether that's a personal experience or a professional one. So obviously we've, you know, you, we talked in our last segment about the, the larger impact of the strikes on our, on the people in our industry, but what, like who wrote the, the dream spec that they, about their life story, like what's going to be the next show that pops. And it was like, oh, this was, you know, inspired because of something I was feeling during the strike or, oh, I've wanted to write this for 15 years, but I never had the time. And they wrote it for themselves and it just became something that they could sell or that another network really identified with. You know, that that's what I'm I'm looking for. But, you know, like not to bring up someone who's been canceled, but you know, I remember the the writer strike in 07. You know what came out of that? Dr. Horrible sing along blog, Joss Whedon. Like that was one of the first great pieces of scripted entertainment, live action scripted entertainment that came for a new media platform, YouTube. Like he self-distributed that, right? Like he posted that to YouTube. He paid for it himself. You know, he put it on iTunes, right? Like that was brilliant. What's going to be the next Dr. Horrible that comes out of this. I assume that there will be both great art and multiple solipsistic garbage novels that will come out of this. I, I suspect that it will be a little from column A and a little from column B, but I look forward to seeing what the <laughs> what the options are. Yeah. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Number four. 
Up next, it's time for our showrunner spotlight segment. Joining us this week is Glenn Mazzara, the co-showrunner of the MGM Plus sci-fi drama Beacon 23. The series, which has already been renewed for a second season, is based on the Hugh Howey book of the same name and stars Lena Haiti and Stephen James, who together become trapped on an AI-controlled beacon in the farthest reaches of the Milky Way. Mazzara cut his teeth alongside the likes of Carlton Cuse, Damon Lindelof, and Sean Ryan on Nash Bridges before going to work on shows including The Shield, Crash, The Walking Dead, and Damien. Mazzara is also involved with Reframe, an initiative that helps mitigate bias during the creative decision-making and hiring process, and has a very interesting role with the WGA during the writer's strike. Thanks so much for joining us, Glenn. Thanks for having me. Getting started, Beacon 23 was created by Zach Penn, and mm-hmm. you were brought in to serve as showrunner on season two, which is not what's premiering now. This is season one, but production, as I understand it, continued straight through after season one wrapped. How much did you work with Zach on the larger tones of the show and, and what the tent poles of season two should be? I worked very closely when he was there. So what what happened was I had bumped into Zach. You know, Zach and I were friendly because we had both been on the Writers Guild Board of Directors. So we sat next to each other at these meetings for, you know, two years or something. And and I bumped into him and said, you know, what's going on? What are you up to? And he said, he told me about Beacon 23, that it was a big shoot and that they were still filming season one and, and now pushing into season two. And could I come in and help punch up some scripts and all of that? So we started working together and mapping things out and all of that. And then, you know, he had some other engagements. So I became showrunner for season two and also co-showrunner with Joy Blake, who's a terrific writer who I've worked with a number of times. And so we did season two, but then season one was still finishing up and they were, and we were finding material in season two and wanted to set that up in season one and kind of had this gift that you're shooting two episodes together so we could pick up scenes, we could kind of figure things out. So I really ended up kind of taking over season one as well and editing and finishing the show. We were lucky that we had two seasons shooting and we could, you know, kind of go back and say, how do we build out this world? How can we deepen the characters? How can we add to their journeys? You know, Zach had a very worked out mythology, which was great. You know, and then a lot of the conversations that came up were about, oh, we can go into this corner. You know, it's a genre show, obviously. It's sci-fi. And I, I'm, I'm a sci-fi fan. So I know a lot of genre fans love to know what's, go- what's going on in that part of the world. What's happening over there? And we have this beautiful set, you know, that's really an incredible design that was shot on different stages. And so, but, you know, it's one location as you would have. So how do you get out? How do you go to other parts of the universe and figure out how that's creating pressure on our characters. So we we were lucky that we could pick up a few episodes or move storylines around. And I really want to give a shout out to my editor for season one, Aaron Deck, who is just brilliant and, and really kind of helped me find the show. With Beacon 23 and with Apple TV's Silo, Q Howie is kind of having a big moment. Had you been a reader of his previously? I had read Wool which is the basis of Silo. I was not familiar with Beacon 23. So of course I read it when I joined the show, I dug it. I've had conversations with you and 
And, you know, I think we're making the same show. You know what I'm saying? There's a lot that his novel, Beacon 23, is really just a collection of sort of short stories into related short stories. And there's a mythology there. But this is, you know, when you go to series, you really have to adapt. You kind of have to build and all of that. And you have to build out the world. And what I always focus on when I'm adapting something is the tone. What is the, the original writer's intent? as best as I can understand it. You know, what are they going for? What do they want the material to feel like? What's the emotional impact on their audience? And as long as we are hitting that same mark, I feel like that's important. So yes, we have a lot of the same tone, the same material, but obviously we just had to kind of create more since since we just had more air to fill. I'm happy to say that we're on the same page. Well, as someone who's a fan of the genre, what do you think it is about Hugh's worldview, his version or approach to science fiction that makes it a very sort of 2023 friendly version? For me, it's about people who are isolated, (laughs) you know, people who are under pressure. I mean, just felt like Beacon 23 was surprisingly relevant. We've all come through this pandemic. We're all connected. As we're talking now, we're all in different locations right now. And we're using technology to bring us together in a way that before the pandemic, you know, maybe we would have got been in the same room or something. And also, I think the the thing about the pandemic is that it really made you feel how important mental health is and how you have to take care of it and how, how you everything started feeling dreamlike and surreal and we were doing the same things over and over and we were in a room with people we both love and who are driving us crazy and we're driving them crazy and all of that so I felt like that was very relevant here and the fact that he just had this very simple setting you know it's just people in a lighthouse but it's heightened because that lighthouse is on the edge of the galaxy. I thought that was really fascinating. So I I think he's a very exciting writer. Well, you talked a bit about this and I want to go into more detail on it because the first thing people think of when they think of sci-fi is kind of epic scale, that it's a, it's galactic rather than just sort of local. But on the other hand, claustrophobic sci-fi is its own thriving subgenre. So what are the tricks to making a show that is fairly contained, fairly claustrophobic by intent, but also also still gives the impression that it's epic beyond the borders of the frame? Well, that's, that's a great question. So with Zach's approach to this was that it's a thriller. It's two damaged people coming together, and that plays as like a kitchen drama, okay? You can literally see in the first scene, these scenes are taking place over meals or whatever. I thought that was really interesting, you know, and you didn't know who to trust. So that was a way to make it more personal. Right. So there was this thriller element in which we weren't sure what the mystery was, but it felt contained within the room. That's one thing. So now how do you add scale to that? You add scale to that by and I think one of the things we did with the world building is by filling out parts of the timeline and giving the audience pieces of the puzzle that maybe our characters don't have. And so there are episodes. We have a terrific episode, episode four, that stars Barbara Hershey and Eric Lang, and they're the only two people. It sort of takes place many years before Aster and Halen, Lena and Stefan's characters arrive. They probably don't even know that the Barbara Hershey character exists, okay? But the audience does. So it's, you start getting a sense of time as opposed to these big galactic battles. Most sci-fi things, and I am a sci-fi fan, but I think they're sort of hitting the idea of the galactic war 
very hard. We see this now in, you know, Star Trek. You see, obviously, in Star Wars, you have it in Foundation, you have it in Battlestar Galactica, you know, Expanse sort of had Expanse, different things going on. But it's a trope for sci-fi. We want that to kind of stay away from that. We want that to stay away from the big battles that we see other shows do incredibly well. How do you differentiate this? This is about isolation. This is personal. So that was by intent, by design. And I think that was in Hugh's original material. And it was certainly in Zach's take on it. And another thing that the genre has to do by necessity is that a fair amount of exposition is is required. You have to put viewers into whatever this world is and explain its rules to them. And one of the things I found notable about the first couple episodes of the show is how much it doesn't dump exposition on the viewers. It says, okay, these people don't necessarily understand the rules of the world that they're living in, so maybe it's okay if the audience doesn't either. What are the pleasures, but also the challenges of doing a show where maybe all of the information just isn't there on the table at all times? Well, that's a great question. Thanks for asking that. It's funny, Halen, for various reasons that the audience will find, he's a terrible lighthouse keeper, and he doesn't understand how it works. So that's good. That's actually good. There's a part where he actually has post-its on stuff. Don't touch this. <laughs> you know, this, this opens this. So that's kind of fun. That's different. We tried very hard to just, when people have technology, they use that technology for a reason, to get to something. They don't necessarily have to understand how it works. I don't understand how my computer works. I don't understand how my phone works. I just know what I want it to do. So we use that approach because a lot of times in certain shows, they create some pseudoscience and then explain it and then say, if we could just reverse it, we'll get back to normal or something like that. One is, I don't know if that's true, but that's how a lot of shows kind of work. And there's a pleasure in that. It was kind of freeing to have characters that didn't know what was going on. That added to the mystery. They just took it for granted. And that felt real to me. If I was on a space station, I would probably want to know what's safe, what's not. That's terrifying. That's actually more terrifying when you don't understand how it all works. And so as the show continues, I'll say that our approach for this lighthouse, we really wanted to hit the lighthouse motif hard so that we felt like that there was interstellar weather that was, you know, we wanted to feel like they're battening down where there were storms or whatever. And then it starts to feel in future episodes, it starts to feel by design as a gothic castle because the lighthouse itself, the beacon itself, it becomes a manifestation of the character's inner emotional states. So as they are become darker or more isolated or whatever, we start to see that the beacon starts to change. And it's easy to say the beacon becomes its own character, but I would say the beacon is tied to their emotional state in a way that other places aren't. You could tell if someone's depressed, their house is dark, their house is messy. You could, you know what it's like when someone's a hoarder, or something like that. We wanted to capture the psychological aspects through that and not necessarily lean so much on how it works. The other thing I'll say is that it was very important to us to trust the audience. I think the audience wants to be trusted. We could have easily opened with a crawl and explained everything and had these info dumps. Most shows I work on ask me for that. And I resist. I just resist. I don't like watching that. I don't know other people who like watching that. You're not going to do a better job than Star Wars, the original crawl there. You're not going to beat that. So 
come up with something different. And then once we got out of the gate, we just felt like we didn't need it. I feel like the show also treats the characters, particularly the two main characters in the same way where it doesn't spell out from the beginning, okay, this person is clearly the hero. This person is clearly the villain. This person is the villain, but they're going to become heroic. So don't worry, they're going to be fine. There's a lot of guessing that it makes you do involving the motivations Mm -hmm. and involving the nature of the characters. I'm curious specifically about Lena and Stefan and what you think those two bring to characters who are as ambiguous as the main characters, at least initially, are here. They were cast before I joined the show. But I do feel that people are going to sit down and watch Lena Headey and they're going to have certain expectations. You know, we just saw her as Cersei and she was very buttoned up and royal and and all of that. And now we see her tats and she's out there and she's got a cool look and she's doing things we haven't seen her do, you know, or I haven't with, seen with her gray do. hair, too, by the way. <laughs> Yeah, you know, and she looks fantastic and she's exciting yeah. and, and I felt like she was compelling. So I think that's cool. You want to see her do that stuff. And Stefan is kind of could feel like he's going to fit the role of the action hero. And then he's such a talented actor. He's playing all this vulnerability and mental health issues underneath. And that kind of forces them to mistrust each other, but also to have compassion for each other. So when you're writing for actors who can do so many things, you got to give them a lot. You can't just, (laughs) the show runs the risk of becoming repetitive. And just because you're in the same, it's a very limited cast and you're in the same setting for the season. So you want to push them. They want to be put to both give great notes and ask questions and all of that. One thing I'm really, really proud about the show is that it's surprising. I do think it's a show that the audience can never sit back and say, oh, I know what's going to happen next. It's a little bananas. It's fun. It's fun. It's wild. And we take chances and everything. And I think you can do that if you're grounded in the central characters. And the only way you can really get grounded in those central characters in such a a heightened world is that you have to have actors who can play many different levels at once. And they're also both producers on the show. How active were they and how active were they in that role relative to other kind of star-driven shows that you've worked on? Well, I mean, they certainly were involved or whatever, but I'll be honest that I think they were, by the time I got there, a lot of the production was already established. The first few episodes were already in the can. And so they were just very involved in the material and their characters and that. One of the challenges of a show like this okay and this was a very very challenging shoot which is interesting because it's all interior but because every time you go upstairs it's an entire company move to another level it was a tough shoot but they're in every episode they're in almost every scene so they're just working all the time they're exhausted they're showing up they're delivering sometimes complicated sci-fi dialogue that they're just like what what does this mean what does the thing do and that kind of stuff so a lot of it was just kind of understanding the characters and their emotional arcs. They worked hard on this show. So Beacon 23, from a business perspective anyway, was originally developed to be a Spectrum original via Mm -hmm. Charter Communications. And then it was going to air in a second window on AMC where you used to do The Walking Dead. But then Spectrum bailed on originals and the show was put up for sale and it was picked up by MGM Plus, the artist formerly known as Epics, which is of course now controlled by Amazon. Did the show change at all as part of the move or were both seasons already in the can. Both seasons were in the can and the move to MGM Plus happened during the strike. So I was not involved in that 
decision. You know what I'm saying? I will say that since the strike ended, you know, there were a few episodes where I was tidying up some post stuff. And MGM is really excited about the show that we made. From what I understand, they were like, great, we love this. Michael Wright is the head of MGM Plus, And I used to work with Michael uh, when he was at TNT. I did a show for him. And he said that he was interested in this material when it hit the market and it ended up going to Spectrum. So he was he's really been a fan of you and this book for a while. So he was excited to get another bite at the app. And they've been incredibly supportive of it. You obviously mentioned the writer's strike, but now here we are where the actor's strike is officially over. Well, yes. not officially, but yes. it needs to, needs to be ratified and all those things. But they have a tentative agreement. How mm-hmm. are you feeling now that the hot labor summer turned into the frustrating fall is officially over. I feel great. I mean, congratulations to SAG-AFTRA and their leadership for getting it done. It sounds like they had a lot of issues. I mean, we all have to see what are the particulars of the deal, but it seems like they had their very specific issues that needed to be worked out. I know people over the past few weeks have saying, come on, get it done, get it done. I was on the Writers Guild negotiating committee in 2017. These things are complex. <laughs> they take a long time to just even understand the existing contracts. What are we talking about? What does this mean? What does this say? And so the fact that Seb was able to hold together, I think the writers, all of the writers feel a lot of joy for them. The actors going out on strike gave the writers strike a huge boost, just morale-wise. It gave us a lot of leverage or whatever. So we really do feel like we're in this together. And if they're happy with their deal, then great. We're all happy. And so now we can all get back to work. I think there's going to be a couple of different phases of that. From what I understand right now, the next few weeks will be about gearing up what can go right into production, existing shows and movies that were ready to go. And then there'll be a lot of scripts were delivered right before the strike and people have been doing notes and stuff. And so that'll probably go into production. And then hopefully in January, buyers will be open because they'll now know what their needs are and stuff like that. So I think it's a good time. I think people are excited. They see a lot of opportunity. We're glad it's done. It was necessary. But I'll admit during the strike, there was some low point. I was like, how are we ever going to go back to work? How are we going to work together? How do we get past this? It was right after the comment about they hope the writers lose their homes. Yeah. The anonymous studio side exec allegedly who told Deadline. Yeah. That was a mean-spirited comment. And so how are you going to go and be partners with somebody and work together? I'm back at work on a couple of projects. And you know what? Everybody's excited. Everybody's optimistic. It's in the rearview mirror. I'm enjoying what I'm doing. So I feel very positive. And I think other people I'm speaking to feel positive. People feel like it's a good time and good things are ahead. So hopefully, I know a lot of people need work and people are still sweating that. I take that seriously. But right now, I feel like people are optimistic. You mentioned before you're on the WGA board, how else were you involved in the strike? Because I know we obviously talked for my 100-day feature, what you were working on and how you were remaining creative during it. How else were you working with the WGA? I was the chair of the Strike Rules Compliance Committee. <laughs> okay, so the Strike Rules Compliance Committee is the committee that has to investigate charges of people violating strike rules, scabbing. And I was on this committee in 2007, and it was a very large committee back then. And it took up a lot of time. And so this time, I think there were lessons to be learned from how it was handled back then and certain things. And so sometime in the spring... 
maybe January or February, I wrote to the board and I said, hopefully there is no strike, but if there is a strike, I volunteer for this position. I know it's a thankless position, but I have a take on it. (laughs) So I spoke to Meredith about it and explained how I felt it should be handled. And then we had a small group of writers. So you have a group of writers that represent talk show variety, dramas, comedies, features. We pulled together about six or seven of us. And there are two lawyers from the Guild who are involved. And what you do is people give some notice of possibly a strike rule violation. So-and-so is writing during the strike. You get that a lot. A lot of it was because some of the shows were still allowed to shoot. They were shooting because they had scripts in the can. And then sometimes pages would come out or something like that. And people would say, they're still shooting. Somebody must be writing or something like that. So we had, I don't know, maybe tips, dozens and dozens of tips, maybe even 200 or something. And so then we would spend time together as a committee and we would go through and we would say, well, does this sound like a strike rule violation? For example, someone is tweeting about a show. Well, the Guild has no rules that you're not allowed to tweet about a show. There are rules that you can't attend a premiere or rules that you can't have meetings, but that's free speech and there's no rule about social media. So we would discount some of these accusations. But then you did have some accusations where everybody on the team, we would divvy it up. I think I probably did most of the calls and I would call and and speak to people and say, listen, I understand this is painful, but you know, we have this accusation and I would like to get your statement because I did not want to call around and ask people, do you think so-and-so is scabbing? That was done a little bit in 2007. And that feels a little disingenuous to me. I want to take people at their word. You know what I'm saying? People are presumed innocent. And most of it was just, no, I'm here on a picket line and that didn't happen. And here's what's going on. Or they changed that location and the line producer put out the page and we would look at the page and we would look at the evidence. So we really spent a lot of time looking at every single one and calling people. And I'm happy to say that there was no wave of scabbing. You know, there were a couple of violations here or there, but Unlike the last strike, where I can tell you that there were patterns of scabbing, there wasn't this time. And I thought that was like the canary in the coal mine on how the strike was doing and how the membership was holding together. I felt that the leadership did a great job of articulating the stakes. I think people understood the issues. They understood how important and people really hung together. And so when people were talking about, oh, the strike's going to fall apart, I was looking at what was being reported. I was like, the strike's not going to fall apart. This membership is taking it seriously and they're united. And it was a very, very interesting viewpoint of the strike. I was very proud of the membership, you know, because people did not cheat. People really took it to heart and they obeyed the strike rule. What were the violations that you did see? I will say there was some confusion over PR kind of stuff. Can you do a podcast? Can you do panels? There was some confusion about that. I do think the Guild has to kind of clean up those rules. Uh, Sometimes you had people tweaking lines more than they should have. There's a certain amount of allowance of certain changes that can happen without rewriting. Nobody really rewrote anything. Nobody was delivering scripts or anything. We didn't have that. So did these changes on set happen? Did they exceed what was allowed? That happened. Sometimes there were some issues 
with hyphenates, director, producer. Sometimes that, that was the thing. It was really minutia. And again, it's not like the guild is out to get anybody. So it wasn't, we took it seriously. We had conversations, you know, that kind of stuff. There might be some others that I, I don't feel I'm at liberty to discuss. But for the most part, there was no pattern of strike rule violation. There just weren't. Obviously, as we talk more about the strikes and what comes next, the landscape that existed before the writers went out on strike and what they're returning to and what the actors are returning to now, at least from my vantage point, is changing considerably, right? Peak TV, as we knew it, is over, right? The era of consolidation and pulling back content, like especially now as we go into what comes next, you're going to start to see the battle for sound stages and actors schedules are going to mean some projects are going to have to get scrapped, whether that's films or TV shows, etc. But from your vantage point, you mentioned maybe in J- come January, buyers will start buying again. But what have you seen the landscape look like now that you've gone back to work? And you, you've said you've been working on a couple of projects too. I consult on Alexi Hawley's show, The Rookie. So I think a lot of that is about getting those scripts ready so that when SAG ends the strike, which they did last night, we could start shooting as soon as possible and getting that into the pipeline and all of that, right? So that's been a lot of the machine, that network machine gearing up. So there's been that. I'm developing a project that I'm excited about. I don't want to give details or whatever. That's a lot about following the process that I think is the usual process. You know, you deliver the material, you get notes on the material, they'll have to decide does it work for their platform or not, you know, that kind of stuff. So we'll see what happens with that. But the business, I guess I'm not clear on what you're saying you feel is the current you're asking me what is the landscape, but what do you think is the landscape? What are you saying? Are you saying that it's going to contract or it's going to be yes. problematic? Is, it, I'm okay. saying it, it started contracting months ago, even before the strike. You started seeing it a did lot start of these, contracting. Like, un- unrenewals, et cetera, but it's the strike really accelerated that. So let's talk about that. So I would say that my experience, okay, because before Beacon 23 and last year I started consulting on The Rookie, I was developing. So the last thing I had shot was in 2019, I shot a pilot for Amazon based on Stephen King's Dark Tower. I shot a pilot in Croatia and that didn't go. And I got word at Christmas 2019. For the entire pandemic, I was hustling and just developing stuff. I, I didn't have anything in production until I joined these two shows last year. So I felt that what was happening was a lot of the buyers were saturated with material because they weren't shooting as much. So there was a backlog of material that they had bought. So the cupboards were full. I would say right now the cupboards are bare. Stuff's going to go in. They've had months to go through everything. They know what's not picking up. So yes, a lot of writers are going to be available, but there's a need here. So I think they're going to be buying. I think people want to work. So I think that's, that's important. As far as schedules and stages and stuff. That's just producing. That's just stuff that, you know, is always the issue. The other thing is, I'll say this, Leslie, that to me, TV is about compression. It's all about, you don't have two hours to tell a story. You have one episode. Yes, you can tell it over many episodes. You know, you might have a season or whatever, but it's always about breaking it down. And so most of what I do, or a lot of what I do when I'm producing a show is, okay, here's my grand scheme. Now, what can we really afford? What can we really shoot? What can I get down to the barest minimum so that I still tell the story? And that is part of what we do. So yeah, I get that the business might contract, 
But I'll say this, that there have been reports like, oh, the business is going to contract and all of this. They're saying that, but I have to see that. You know what I'm saying? I, I, I mean, that's kind of the conventional wisdom. Landgraf years ago said peak TV is going to pop. Well, how many years ago did he say that? Yeah, and he's admitted multiple times that he was wrong about the timing of it anyway. Yeah, how many years ago did he say that? Seven, oh, it's like six, seven, eight years ago. Okay, so great. So, oh, I made a prediction and eight years later it came true. Well, he was saying it was gonna pop in within the 12 months or something, if I remember correctly, maybe I'm wrong. So I don't know what's gonna happen, but I'll be honest, you know, I mean, like during my career, I started in 1998, there were no DVDs. You know, there was no thought that anybody would ever watch an entire season of TV after it was on and go back or whatever, you know, maybe you had things on VHS or whatever, but there were no DVDs. There was no streaming. There was no that. The business changes, you know, and you kind of have to figure it out. Here's something. We all have an idea of how AI is going to affect TV. We really don't know. You just have no idea what's going to happen. Going back to the reason I'm here to talk about Beacon 23, we have this whole story about AI in it. And we have characters that represent AI, two different characters, and it becomes a bigger story as the show goes on. I'll admit, when I joined the show, I wasn't really interested in AI. I had never really researched AI. Now I feel like the world has changed. That that storyline is incredibly relevant. I'm proud of the stuff we say. We actually say some stuff that I think will add to the conversation. It's such an insane business. It's an absolutely insane business. And one of the things I've learned is I, I just let it go. I just, you know, I want to do a good job. I want to work with good people, but I have given up trying to figure out what's going on. <laughs> you know, like I just, is there going to be a strike? I'm always wrong. You know, is what's going to happen? How long is it going to last? What do you think so-and-so is going to buy? I'm always wrong. So please, if you're listening to this, do not listen. Watch the next show, but don't take any advice. I'm curious, taking a step back on where you are in your career right now, where you stand in terms of what gives you pleasure or creative gratification between the side of you that wants to be developing Glenn Mazzara projects where you're the person who starts with it and it it flows out of you versus the opportunity to either be a consultant on something like The Rookie or to step in and help shepherd Beacon 23 as it goes towards its second season. What makes you gratified creatively at this point. That's really interesting. So I'll admit that before Beacon and the rookie and stuff, you know, I was frustrated. Okay. I was very frustrated. I felt like I was going out there with really exciting material, both material that I had generated. I had original stuff. I had things I really loved that I wanted to adapt. And I had partnered with writers that I wanted to shepherd. I do a lot of mentoring. I support a lot of writers. So I'm fine helping other people tell their stories and and getting new viewpoints out there and all of that. That's a thing that I'm very interested in doing. And a lot of that stuff, I was disappointed with things that didn't sell. And I think things didn't sell because a lot of executives at the time did not want to stick their necks out. I felt like folks were just taking meetings. I'm convinced that a lot of executives now are getting paid with stock. And so you don't want to stick your neck out. You want to hang on so that, you know, your stock vests and all of that stuff, you know, so I could be wrong about that, but I've convinced myself that's true. So I found things that I really felt worked. I was disappointed. So when Leslie asked me about, you know, we were coming up to hundred days, what are you working on? I started working on a novel. I have this idea for a big story. It could be 
I think it would be a great TV show, but I don't trust the development process. I just don't. I worry about me going into pit something and says, yeah, that's great. I love that. What about this? I don't want to do that. I want to tell my story. So I decided to kind of take that story and put it there. And, and I have an idea of maybe writing several stories. So I'm interested in developing that part of my career and growing as an artist in that way. So I, I do that. What's interesting is with The Rookie, great bunch of people, and it's very pleasant. And those actors show up and they work hard. And I love that. They're taking it seriously. They sell every line and the writers are working really hard. Alexi's a friend. We've been friends since before we became writers and stuff. Back in Brooklyn, we've known each other almost 30 years. So that's an incredibly pleasant experience. Then on Beacon, Beacon, I've worked with some people and we really spent a lot of time putting that together in post and all of that because there's so much visual effects. And so you have that time to edit. And that was really one of the most creatively challenging shows I've worked on, just kind of making the pieces fit, maybe because we had so much time. And that was a lot of fun. So I think what's important to me is I like figuring it out. I like doing the work. I'll be honest. I don't know if I'm ever going to win an Emmy. Probably not. Probably never going to win an Oscar. You know, I don't even know if I'm going to create a hit show that goes on for multiple years. I don't know. I don't know what's in the card. But I like being in a room breaking story. I like writing a script. I'm miserable when I'm writing, but then I'm miserable when I'm not writing. So you get who <laughs> I am. I like figuring it out. I like putting it together. And then what I enjoy about being a showrunner like say on Beacon 23, is I had a lot of people, my post team, my editors, my visual effects people, the musicians, the sound people, they all say that when they work with other showrunners, somebody just told me last week, they're reduced to being button pushers, do this, do that, where I really try to turn those artists loose. I try to explain what I think the show feels like. And it was really a beautiful experience to step off for the strike and then come back and kind of pick up where, not where we had left off, because obviously they had done five months of work, but to say like, yeah, that's what I think the show sounds like. That's what it feels like. So what's gratifying to me is kind of being in the trenches. I'll never be a mogul. I will never be a mogul. Not that anyone's asking me to be a mogul, but that's not, that's not what I do. Like in the way that you have certain writers, I'm not putting myself on the level with Milch. I'm not doing that. But Milch is like, he struck me as a writer who had to write. I mean, he had to do the work. You know, I've, I've known people who have worked with him. Sutter is like that, my friend Kurt. He's got to do the work. He's not lording over a lot of different things. So I find like that sort of stuff really appeals to me. I don't know if that makes sense, but that makes sense in the sense that I'm answering your question. But that's what's gratifying to me. Does that make sense to you? Absolutely. And it's interesting because then what I enjoy watching is something that you know, swings for the fences. I want to be surprised. So like right now I'm watching, I don't know if you guys are watching Scavenger's Reign. Not yet, but I've heard good things. I love it. I'm all caught up. You're already answering our last question, Glenn. <laughs> oh, what's the last question? Okay, I'll wait. <laughs> well, we always end <laughs> with what, the same one. And it's, it's, what have you been watching and enjoying? Yeah. Scavenger's Reign, home run. Love it, love it. <laughs> That's what I'm watching now. And Lego Masters. I do enjoy Lego Masters. <laughs> I love it. Okay. Glenn, thank you so much for stopping by and, and being so generous with your time. It's always a treat to talk to you. One of my favorite interviews in town. Great. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Thank you. And I said it before we started, but I'm really a fan of this podcast. You know, and you know, Leslie, I was like, why, why am I not on that podcast? Leslie doesn't want me on or whatever. So I'm thankful you were able to squeeze me in. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. I couldn't think of a better guest to have 
to celebrate the end of the dual strikes. We appreciate you being here. Beacon 23 premieres on November 12th on MGM+. Plus. Yes, that's the artist formerly known as Epics. Number five. As usual, we wrap things up with the Critics' Corner. Among this week's major new launches, you've got The Curse at Showtime, the return of Apples for All Mankind, and the debut of The Buccaneers. And you just heard our interview with Beacon 23 showrunner Glenn Mazzara, which arrives on MGM+. Dan, what you got for us? Yeah, lots and lots and lots and lots of stuff. And again, whatever the the great slowdown was, it does not feel as if it is currently happening. And next week is another uh, bumper crop of, of programming. And I haven't even gotten to any of next week's stuff. I mean, next week you got the Godzilla show with Kurt Russell. You've got Scott Pilgrim. You've got Murder at the End of the World, which might be a potential interview topic on future podcasts, hypothetically. Yeah, next week is another crazy week. And, and this week, you know, you, you mentioned the things you mentioned, and I just want to quickly, before getting into some of those things, note that on Saturday, HBO is premiering Defending My Life, Rob Reiner's documentary about his longtime friend, and we're talking, they went to high school together, Albert Brooks. It is, it's mostly 90 minutes of Albert Brooks and Rob Reiner sitting around talking. Yes, there are other people, tons of clips, uh, etc. It's a good documentary. It, it, my biggest complaint about it was that if HBO did four-hour documentaries about George Carlin and Gary Shandling, I wanted more than 90 minutes about Albert Brooks. I would also add, and this will be in my newsletter tomorrow as well, that one of my complaints about the documentary was that at the moment at which I watched my screeners, none of Albert Brooks's films were available to stream anywhere, which made it a real frustration because all I wanted to do was sit down and watch a couple Albert Brooks movies. And fortunately, HBO has, has done some effort on this. So Max now has Defending Your Life, not to be confused with Defending My Life, which is the title of the documentary. But anyway, a great movie. Hilarious Meryl Streep, wonderful Rip Torn, etc. And also the the masterpiece that is Lost in America. So at least there are some of them out there now. But yes, yeah, so this weekend is the premiere of that. I also wrote a, a fairly positive review of Paramount Plus's new Australian import comedy, Colin from Accounts, which I found fairly charming uh, and much more likable and charming than I would have expected from a rom-com in which the initial meet-cute, which takes place in the first three minutes of the show, involves a woman flashing a driver as they are flirting with each other, which causes him to run over a dog with his car, which is not usually the sort of thing that sets up a lovable potential romance. Don't worry, the dog is largely okay, and their relationship has other problems. Anyway, I thought it was really, really good. Uh, Harriet Dyer, co created the show and co-stars in it. She was really great in American Auto, a show that unfortunately NBC was really just not able to generate any real momentum for, and it got canceled after two seasons. So I'm a little bit sad about that. And so you just heard our conversation with Glenn Mazar about Beacon 23. I've only had the chance to see a few episodes, and I think it's interesting. It's it's the sort of granular sci-fi that is not necessarily exactly my flavor of such things, but I see how it's a, a, a pretty solid version of that. And Stephen James and Lena Headey are, are very good, and the show is is all about them. It's, you know, it's, it's not, it's not a two-hander, but in some ways it feels like it could be. So yeah, I think, I think if you are a fan of that kind of gritty grounded sci-fi, I think you will probably appreciate it even more than I did. So 
That brings us to the week's three big shows are probably the premiere of Apple TV Plus's The Buccaneers, the fourth season return of Apple's For All Mankind, and then the series premiere of Showtime's The Curse. And all three are very worth your interest if you happen to be a fan of the things that they are. Like, I'm not going to tell you that if you are not a fan of kind of poppy feminist period romance shows that you should watch the Buccaneer. So that's that's pretty simple. If you, you you know what the genre looks like, and the genre looks like Bridgerton in certain very anachronistic ways, it looks like Gilded Age in somewhat less anachronistic, but still a little wink and nudgy in in that respect. It looks like that. It looks like Sofia Coppola's Marie Antoinette, and it looks like the Buccaneers, which is based on the. I believe initially unpublished or possibly posthumous Edith Wharton novel. And it's it's a show that is not perfect and that I don't necessarily know works on the levels that it's supposed to be primarily working. Like the the core romances between the characters are all a little bit on the the heavy-handed, overly weighted side where you kind of see where everything's going and and you kind of get it early on. But the show has a lot of energy and a lot of youthful energy and it it's very very likable and solid in the things that it does. It it helps that the cast is is really excellent. And it's a lot of people who, some of them you will recognize, some of them you'll vaguely recognize, some of them you'll recognize because one one of the actors in it is Imogen Waterhouse, who looks an awful lot like her sister, Suki Whitehouse, uh, who was in, Waterhouse rather, who was in uh, Daisy Jones, looked very, very similar. So you might not necessarily know her, but you know her genetics. To me, the show and its appeal start with Christine Froseth, who was great in Looking for Alaska, the Hulu miniseries that we had uh, Josh Schwartz on the podcast for in one of our very, 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 very first interviews. Leslie, give us a number for that one. Josh Schwartz joined us in episode 32, August 2nd, 2019, which by the way, was recorded live in person at TCA. Indeed, that was at the uh, that was at the Beverly Hilton. Um, I, I remember the room uh, because it was my TCA president hotel room so nice room but <laughs> but yes that's our sec- that's our second reference to interviews done from roughly the same press tour long time ago anyway uh but yes so she was excellent in that and in that she did a very good job of humanizing a character who is one of john green's kind of manic pixie dream girls she was also very good in the society she kind of came out looking better than the work around her in lena dunham's sex farce stick which is a movie that has a lot of problems but she's not really one of them i don't know what her career is going to look like in 30 years but she is so good at playing this kind of guileless winsome young woman you believe the emotions she's feeling and i feel like the show holds together really and truly because of how good she is in the lead role. But she's hardly the only person who's excellent in this. Uh, Alicia Bow, who I remembered vaguely from 13 Reasons Why, she's very good here. A lot of the actors um, are more sort of from the British, let's be a hunky masterpiece theater kind of leading man 
and and I don't necessarily know that the show is really about them, so it doesn't really matter. But they're they're all solid. I think I think people will swoon a little bit over a few of them, which is all that matters. Bunch of really good supporting uh, female performances. Audrey Ibrag, I thought is was really good. Josie Toda, very very funny. She's she's just got tremendous comic timing and it's nice to see her get a part in a in a sort of period epic uh you know bodice ripper i think that's nice when it comes to people you'll really recognize christina Hendricks is unquestionably the most recognizable of the leads here and she's really good for a couple episodes i thought that she was kind of wasted and then maybe the third or fourth episode she's got a really great showcase episode in which she's just tremendous and i was like ah okay that's why we employed uh, christina Hendricks. uh i watched five episodes of this and i will definitely keep going this was one of those situations where <laughs> i kind of had to choose what i was doing between this and for all mankind they're both Apple TV shows, so makes sense. I got to be in the same screening room, and I would have happily watched the full season of either. Instead, I decided to watch five episodes of each, and I, I enjoyed the Buccaneers. Didn't a hundred percent embrace it, but I will. I will happily keep going uh, because the performances are good, and it, it feels right. It's also got a very fun, poppy feminist soundtrack, etc. So that's good for all mankind. At this point, you should know if you're watching For All Mankind. Again, it's season four, and this really is one of the best shows on TV. It, it made my top ten list for its second season. It didn't make my top ten list in either the first or third, but I think it made my honorable mention list in both seasons, or or could have. It's big TV show. It's a TV show that has so many actors in it and so many plot lines and episodes can sometimes run to 70 minutes and it's like okay sure well of course because there are too many darn people in this world and it's a show where i've been candid and and most critics have been candid about the things that don't work the the third season was to me completely kneecapped by the danny stevens plot line, which was as bad as any secondary plot line of any great TV show that I can remember. Like we're talking as bad as the stuff with Dana Brody in in the seasons of uh, Homeland in which she kind of dragged things down. I'm talking as bad as Killer Landry in the second season of Friday Night Lights. Um, but worse, actually, because I can come up with entertaining things that were tied to those sub maybe not Dana Brody. Fine. I can talk. I can think of entertaining things to say about Killer Landry and have been doing so for 15 to 20 years. So good thing. But I can't think of entertaining or positive things to say about the Danny Stevens storyline on For All Mankind. I can say with some pleasure that he is not an impediment to the fourth season. So saying no more on that subject, but if if you're like, I don't know if I can deal with another season of Danny Stevens as a B storyline, you don't need to. If, however, you're like, I don't know if I can deal with another season of the old age makeup on this show and what they keep doing to Joel Kinnaman and company, yeah, unfortunately, you do need to keep dealing with that. It is it is absolutely one of the problems with the series is that they fell in love with a handful of the actors from the initial run, and they just weren't able to, to move on. And so you get a lot of Joel Kinnaman in old age makeup. You get a lot of Ren Schmidt in old age makeup. You get a lot of Chris Marshall in old age makeup. And for the most part, it's it's not very good. I mean, the drama around them is perfectly fine, the old age makeup is rarely good, and it always does feel as if in an ideal world, they would have done a better job with the younger characters so that it didn't require Ed Baldwin, that being Joel Kinman's character, 
to be central to everything. Unfortunately, it is. As for the new plot lines, uh, Toby Kebbell is is the biggest main new character because this season's plot line really does involve kind of the privatization of the space travel industry and of Mars in particular and the way that that invariably involves exploiting workers. So it's kind of the transition from exploration to exploitation in space. And Toby Kebbell plays a a worker who goes to Mars because it's the only way he thinks he can make money and he discovers that it's not as glamorous as he thought it was going to be with the uh, stressful complications. Not my favorite part of the season, but in general, this is just a show that is so substantive. It really is just like chewing on a good steak for an hour at a time, which doesn't really work because if it's a good steak, you probably couldn't chew on it for an hour at a time. You'd probably, you know, good Wagyu or something, it melts in your mouth practically. So, okay, as we're recording this, we have shifted into lunchtime, so I'm getting hungry. Bottom line is season four of For All Mankind, which I watched five episodes of also, just very satisfying, very good, very little Danny Stevens. So yeah, definitely worth checking out. And if you haven't, and if you have any interest at all in space, in science, in exploration, it's it's really just a great show, and uh, I, I wish more people watched it, though clearly some people do. It, it, to me, is the kind of show that probably has a very, very wide audience and maybe hasn't necessarily found it, as opposed to The Curse, which I think is a show that is going to be some people's favorite show ever, and some people are going to run screaming from this show after like 15 minutes. and. Honestly, you should probably have some sense of which you're going to be very, very early on. The show is created by Benny Softy and Nathan Fielder. And if you know Benny Softy and he and his brother's films, you know that they are very high anxiety. If you've watched Nathan Fielder's TV shows, including Nathan for You and The Rehearsal, you know that awkwardness is the name of his game. And you know that Emma Stone graduate um, that he that she gravitates towards shows and movies that are not necessarily the most mainstream. She likes playing awkwardness. She likes playing anxiety. And so what you have here is a ten episode show. Episodes mostly are in the fifty minute range. That my review called it the squirmiest new show of the year, and and I think that is pretty well what it. Is. It is a show that will make you extremely anxious, extremely mortified, and will do it for long stretches of time. So if you are somebody who thinks that Curb Your Enthusiasm, for example, is more mortification humor than you can handle in 28-minute doses, imagine a show that's more mortifying and less directly funny in 55 minute doses. This this is a show that will freak people out because of the sheer amount of looking away from their television they're going to have to do. As the basic background, Nathan Fielder and Emma Stone play a couple who are working on the pilot for an HGTV show called Flipanthropy, which is a show that blends house flipping and philanthropy. See how they came to that title. And Uh, They're very, very self-obsessed and very, very much from a certain vein of progressive white leftist attitude that 
thinks it's doing the right thing and sometimes is unable to take a step back and witness its own myopia. And the show is very much about pointing out all of the ways in which these characters are oblivious to their own failings and then humiliating them and pillorying them for 10 episodes. And sometimes it's funny. And I think it's like, if, for example, it's fairly easy to laugh at all of the satirizing of reality TV that the show is doing, because it's doing a lot of that. And and that's easy. You can laugh at that. If you, if you are a Property Brothers viewer, if you've ever watched a Chip and Joanna Gaines show where you're like, ooh, I can see the flaws in their relationship through the camera. If you've ever watched an episode of House Hunters and been like, yeah, that's a couple that's getting a divorce by the time this episode is over, you'll recognize that. As you get into the more political and sociological side of what it is lampooning, maybe it will cut too close to home, or maybe you'll feel it has absolutely nothing to do with you and you can laugh extensively. I think Emma Stone is great. I think Nathan Fielder and Benny Softy, who are not traditional actors, are very effectively used within their limitations. And I think it is unquestionably a show that has a lot to say. And I think it might ultimately be a show where it's more interesting to discuss with people afterwards. That assumes people are going to be able to make it through more than the first 15 or 20 minutes of the pilot. Some people really are going to feel too much anxiety too quickly and are going to check out and are definitely going to feel that way by the episode seven or eight because it really does just keep going. Uh, But if you expect those things and if you brace yourselves for them, there's a lot to enjoy here. Um, and yeah, so worth checking out for that. So all three of the big reviews this week are positive within the confines of you have to know what the show is. So you can absolutely enjoy the Buccaneer Buccaneers. If you're a fan of that genre for all mankind, everyone should watch anyway, the curse. If you know, it's going to make you squirm and you enjoy that, you should watch it. I already mentioned Colin from accounts on Paramount plus it's very likable and the dog that gets hit by the car in the first three minutes is mostly okay. And then if you're a fan of Albert Brooks, uh, definitely recommend defending my life on HBO deep sigh. Well, for more of Dan's weekly recommendations, be sure to subscribe to the Hollywood reporters. Now see this newsletter and bookmark THR.com slash TV dash reviews for more. This feels like a good place to wrap things up. Thank you as always for listening to TV's top five, the Hollywood reporters TV podcast. Be sure to subscribe on all of your various podcasting platforms. If you like us, rate us. If you really like us, leave a little reviewy thing. They help spread the word of mouth. Come say hi to us on the social medias where she is consistently at snoo it with two O's, and I am at consistently at the fine print with F I E N. And if you have questions for future mailbag segments, we're not doing them weekly anymore, but if you got questions, we're happy to try to answer them. You can email us at TV's top five at THR.com. That's TV's top five, the numeral five at THR.com. Until next week, Leslie. Until next week, Dan. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.